Welcome to Behavior Analysis in Practice, the podcast. Behavior Analysis in Practice is a podcast committed to narrowing the research practice gap and demystifying the research process. Each episode will take a deep dive into the latest work published in the journal Behavior Analysis in Practice by interviewing each paper's author about the topic. We'll explore the nuances of the paper and ask the questions you wish you could ask after reading it. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Cody Morris, Assistant Professor of Behavior Analysis at Solve Regina University. And today I'm going to be speaking with Tiffany Kodak about her paper, A Tutorial for the Design and Use of Assessment-Based Instruction in Practice. Dr. Kodak is a licensed psychologist, licensed behavior analyst, and a board-certified behavior analyst at the doctoral level. Dr. Kodak is an associate professor at Marquette University and the executive director of the Center for Language Acquisition and Social Skills Intervention. She is currently the editor-in-chief of the Analysis of Verbal Behavior, another ABAI journal like Behavior Analysis and Practice. Her research interests include increasing the efficiency of academic instruction, treatment integrity, assessment-based instruction, verbal behavior, supervision, professional skills, and computer-assisted instruction. Without further ado, here's my interview with Tiffany Kodak. Hello, Tiffany, and welcome to Behavior Analysis and Practice, the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me today. We're excited to have you. This paper was fascinating and was one of the sort of few papers I read and instantly think this has to be a required reading for my students who take take like an assessment or potentially treatment class with me. I thought it was a phenomenal resource and I'm really excited to unpack some of it with you today. Oh, thank you so much for saying so. Yeah. So could you could you introduce us a little actually I'm getting ahead of myself. So I'm so excited about this paper. I literally want to jump straight into it. But before we jump into your paper, could you maybe introduce us to yourself a little bit? Tell us a little bit about yourself and and why you're interested in this type of research. Sure. Um, I am an associate professor at Marquette University in the behavior analysis program. Um, And I first became interested in this research actually based on um, some of Ed Daly's work back in the 90s. He was talking about the importance of um, functional assessments to identify um, interventions for skill acquisition. um, And that was that was relatively novel at that point in time. That was a, a, a really new idea, um, or at least it was a new idea for me and I hadn't seen it anywhere else. Um, and I thought that was a very interesting topic area. And then in my own line of research, we started conducting comparisons of interventions with learners and found that a lot of learners responded um, uniquely to interventions. And uh, in order to identify how we were going to arrange interventions for learners, it became clear that we needed ways to assess how they were going to respond to those interventions and then base those off of um, the learner's pattern of responding. So um, this line of research kind of happened organically as a result of conducting some of those intervention comparisons and finding there was a need to do some of this assessment just to identify how learners were going to respond. That's awesome. Yeah, it's. I think it's on. 
unfortunate in behavior analysis, it's not quite as easy as this is the right type of prompting method to use across all learners in every situation. Uh, we're not so lucky. So ultimately you do need to have, as a, to be a successful behavior analyst, you do need to have the skills to be able to assess different aspects of intervention. So your paper introduces us to the topic of assessment-based intervention. Can you, can you provide a little bit of background on that topic and, and sort of what the, the overall idea is? Absolutely. So as you said, behavior analysts are expected to use assessments to guide their practices. Um, and unfortunately, it isn't as common that people who work in the area of skill acquisition use assessments to, um, to identify interventions for learners. And um, I find that strange because there is a, a pretty broad and growing literature base um, for conducting assessments and using assessments to guide intervention practices um, in the area of skill acquisition. Um, but one of those barriers of why people may not be using these as readily in practice as, as they could be um, might be because there really isn't a lot of guidance on how to design the interventions from scratch. And so people might be reading these articles, and there are many articles published on assessment-based instruction, but it might not be exactly what they want to do with their learners. And so... Um, we realized there was this gap of how do you design the intervention from scratch and how do you um, use the results of that intervention to guide your practices if what you're looking to do differs from something that's in the literature. So um, we thought this article would be helpful for practitioners or even researchers who might be new to this topic um, to help them learn how to design and then execute that assessment um, with learners. One of the utilities you mentioned as is, is being a benefit of assessment-based intervention within your paper relates to efficacy and efficiency. Could you yes. talk a little bit about those terms and how they relate to this? Yes, absolutely. So when we talk about efficacy, we're talking about whether we see a particular outcome based on that intervention. And it's usually that some kind of skill is learned to some level that we've predetermined, such as some percentage of correct responding or displaying some skill consistently across environments and across people. Um, and so if we identify the intervention as being efficacious, that means that that intervention has produced that learning outcome. Um, but we're also interested in efficiency, particularly because there might be a number of interventions that are efficacious, but they could take a different amount of time to produce that outcome. And so um, we are ideally looking for interventions that are both efficacious as well as efficient so that when we are teaching skills, we can be successful with teaching them and do so in the least amount of time possible. Right. And, and this model of assessment-based intervention ultimately should maximize both, right? That is correct, yes. And your paper is a tutorial, so really the, the primary purpose of it is to outline steps to be able to conduct these assessments uh, or help practitioners be able to conduct these assessments independently. And you propose sort of a nine-step model. Could you, we'll go through each step individually, but could you sort of introduce us to the, the overall pr process a little bit? 
Yes, absolutely. So um, as is the case, when you're a behavior analyst and you're trying to think about how to teach someone else to do something, a great way to go about doing that is to think about the steps that you take as you are um, engaging in that behavior chain. Um, and so we did that when conducting certain assessments and um, wrote down what were those steps that we were taking um, that helped us design the assessment and then conduct it with our learners and then use those outcomes. Um, and ultimately we ended up with the nine steps that are included in the paper as we um, designed assessments ourselves and kind of walk through what that process would look like. So there are nine steps. The first one is to pick a topic um, and there are such a broad range of topics that can be selected. Um, so that can be a little bit challenging, but I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little more detail. So you pick a topic. Once you have identified a topic, then you're going to select um, a couple of interventions that you're going to include in the assessment. At that point, then you're going to identify what target behavior or behaviors you're going to be measuring. So what are your dependent variables? Uh, the next step is to select an experimental design. Um, and the good news is there are there is really one that is primarily used in the context of these assessments. So that's always good news when that's an easy step to complete, especially in practice. Um, the next step is to select skills and specific targets that you're going to include in the assessment. Um, and then thereafter, um, making sure that any non-critical aspects of um, the interventions are controlled for so that only the um, aspects of intervention that should vary are those that are varying. Um, and then last but not least, in terms of the design component, is to select a data collection system. And so that is really what goes into the um, design of the assessment. And then once that assessment is designed, um, then it is conducted. And then you use those results to guide um, your intervention practices with that learner. I love it. And I have so many questions about all the steps. I, I, I found it to be so helpful and so exciting. So let's let's circle our way back to step one, pick a topic to evaluate. Can we go a little bit deeper there and, and, and sort of talk about what that means and, and what some of the common components that you'd be targeting would be? Yeah, great question. So um, picking a topic um, might depend on when you start these assessments. So if you have recently started working with a client um, and you maybe are conducting some other assessments as well, um, it's a good time to consider using the assessment to select a prompt and prompt fading procedure that you might be using um, uh, across a variety of programs. And the reason why that can be a really beneficial place to start is that we do use prompts and prompt fading for very for many skills that we will teach learners. And so that's a great place to start in terms of its applicability to uh, programming for that learner. Um, so if you're just starting off with a learner, that is a good place to start. If you've been working with a learner for a while, you already have um, an idea of efficacious prompts and efficacious and efficient prompt fading strategies, um, then perhaps that isn't a step that you would need to do. And maybe you're looking for ways to make your intervention more efficient, such as um, adding in error correction procedures or considering what type of differential reinforcement procedures you might use or program into your intervention. Um, and those can be topics um, that you select for the assessment as well, among a variety of others too. Do you see any particular component of intervention as being sacred, as being something that don't bother assessing it, everyone does the same exact thing when implementing uh, an intervention? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think you potentially would get a bigger bang for your buck um, if you were to use these assessments to select interventions that do tend to be highly individualized. Um, how a learner responds to error correction is a good example of that. Right. Um, we find that learners do respond differently and they might have behavior patterns that hopefully we can eventually use to predict how they'll respond to these interventions. Um, but that is definitely um, an assessment that we frequently conduct um, because we are going to correct learner errors. Um, in terms of where we might not use an assessment, potentially one exception would be um, if we arrange masked versus varied trial instruction. Yeah. So mass trial instruction um, would look like presenting the same target across all trials. So for example, presenting a picture of the dog, if I was going to teach tax of dog, I would I would present many pictures, but in this example, it would be one picture for mass trial instruction, where perhaps you would present that one picture of the dog in all 10 trials, um, just as an example, versus varied trial instruction, where you might arrange, um, let's say, across the context of 10 trials, you might have five targets um, with two exemplars of each one of those. And so all 10 trials um, entail the presentation of a different target stimulus. Mm. Um, I think that might be an example of where I I would be unlikely to arrange an assessment to evaluate if a learner responded better to mass trial instruction versus varied trial instruction just based on the literature um, in that area and that um, typically varied trial instruction is going to be more efficient just given the nature of the fact that you're varying stimuli. Um, so that might be one area where I would, I would be unlikely to conduct an assessment and I would typically conduct varied trial instruction as opposed to arranging mass trial instruction. Although there are certainly people who arrange that type of instruction. I don't think though that they are arranging that instruction based on an assessment either though. It might be based on the practices within that organization. So that tends to be one area where I, I wouldn't conduct an assessment, but I think for most other aspects of an individual's intervention, assessments certainly could be used to guide those practices. For the varied versus the, the mass trial exposure, is your decision just because there's so much sort of clear evidence in favor of varied versus mass, whereas something like a prompt procedure, there's typically not a whole lot of agreement in, in the literature around which prompting procedure is going to be superior? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would arrange varied trial instruction for a couple of reasons. Um, one being that um, there is literature to suggest that it's efficacious as well as more efficient than mass trial instruction. Um, but for another reason, I would have concerns about the potential um, for some kind of faulty stimulus control or patterns mm -hmm. of uh, problematic responding that might be produced by um, mass trial instruction. And I've certainly conducted mass trial instruction before, and it does not mean that all learners are going to engage in, um, in some kind of faulty or problematic pattern of responding or faulty, or we wouldn't necessarily observe faulty stimulus control, but it does happen a proportion of the time. And so I see um, varied trial instruction being less likely to consistently lead to um, 
problematic patterns of responding that eventually I would want to eliminate. I, I want learners to vary their type of responses. I want them to continually look at stimuli. Um, and if we're presenting the same target over and over again, we tend to see patterns of responding where children might not look at targets. They try to engage in echoic responses. So echoing what self-echoic responses, echoing what they just said, rather than looking at the stimulus that's being presented to them and responding to that stimulus. Um, and so I, just based on my own experiences um, with both of those types of intervention, um, we exclusively arrange varied trial instruction, which is, you know, again, supported by the literature, but also um, based on um, how our learners respond to that intervention. That makes a lot of sense. I do con some consultation from time to time. And so I've, I've had the, the pleasure of going into a lot of different clinics and school settings, et cetera. And in my experience, a lot of clinics and other treatment programs have a tendency of, of getting stuck doing the same routine with every client, right? We do this prompting procedure with all of our clients, or we use this communication modality with all of our clients. Um, if you're following your proposed assessment-based intervention design, you really shouldn't be do, holding anything like that completely standard across all clients. You should really be looking at it idiosyncratically and assessing to see, you know, potentially which modality would be most appropriate, which prompting procedure would be most appropriate. Am I understanding that correctly? Um, yes, I think that um, those would all be um, areas of uh, components of intervention that could be included in the assessment. Although an important thing to keep in mind is that the assessments do take some time to conduct, right. um, as well as some expertise to do so. So I do recognize that using the assessment to guide every aspect of intervention could become cumbersome. Right. And so um, we tend to use them for um, learners who... Um, either are not responding to some procedures that um, we might typically arrange within the context of our intervention, or for those um, components of intervention that are often um, where we see learner-specific, where it's very common that we see learner-specific responses. I'll give you an example. Um, we actually less commonly use an assessment to identify prompt-fading procedures, because when we have, we tend to see a little bit more similar responses across learners mm. in terms of certain procedures um, resulting in efficacious and efficient intervention over time. Um, whereas an inter a component of intervention like error correction tends to be highly individualized. Um, so there, it is important to consider the cost benefit analysis when conducting these assessments. And so uh, we are more likely to conduct assessments for uh, what I would refer to as critical components of intervention, where we see highly individualized responding like error correction procedures, differential reinforcement procedures, um, and use those assessments to guide those practices. Whereas um, our learners, at least with in more recent assessments that we have conducted, um, tend to have similar responses to prompt fading procedures and that might not be an area where um, if they're responding um, well to the prompt fitting procedure that we're using, um, that may not be an assessment that we conduct at least repeatedly um, if they continue to benefit from the assessment or from the prompt fitting procedure that we're using. That makes sense. Yeah, and I suppose if I'm a clinician reading this paper, it's not as if I can stop everything I'm doing and assess each individual component of my instruction, 
you probably need a triage, right? You probably need to figure out, you know, like you were saying, what's the cost benefit ratio, which one of these intervention components may have the biggest bang for the buck if I were to sort of streamline it and make it as effective and as efficient as possible and, and start there and, and, and build out over time. Are there any major errors that people can make at this step? Like step one, are, are there potential gaps that people could make when trying to pr pick a specific component of an intervention? I'm not necessarily sure that the topic is a place where um, there may be a major gaffe. I would say um, for the next step in relation to identifying and selecting interventions to include, mm. that is from my perspective, one of the more challenging steps uh, because of the likelihood to include so many interventions that um, that assessment can be very cumbersome, time consuming, difficult to conduct um, and may with so many interventions uh, you might see difficulty in terms of the learner discriminating and responding differently to conditions um, so in terms of a topic to select I'm, I'm not certain that there's a clear um, problem that someone might engage in um, is that assuming that people are picking a single topic right like now I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take on prompting and error correction and, and the reinforcement uh, as well, all at one time, I imagine it's, it's probably useful to narrow in specifically. Yes, that's a, that's a really great point. Um, yes, you would want to narrow down to a specific topic as opposed to trying to evaluate all of those questions simultaneously. Is there anything else about step one that we should be thinking about before moving on to step two? When, pick, when selecting a topic um, to include in an assessment, in the article we talked about um, common intervention strategies that um, someone might pick as a potential topic, we also use these assessments in um, other ways that aren't necessarily indicated in this article, um, one of which is um, to help with a problem-solving approach. Um, so if we encounter a barrier um, in our intervention and learner isn't making progress, um, it can be difficult at times to identify what is the problem? Why are we not seeing progress? Um, we may have hypotheses about what that is, or we may not. We may really not know um, exactly what's going on. Um, and we use these assessments to help us identify what the problem might be and to guide what we do next. So I'll give you an example. If we're working with a learner, um, I'll actually use an example that's in the article. But if we were working with a learner that um, started to display prompt dependent behavior um, and we were unsure why are we observing this um, pattern of responding? Or is this that perhaps the individual has lost this skill as, or we've been teaching this skill and the individual has lost um, some of those targets um, while we've been conducting this training or maybe they're just not acquiring them to begin with? Um, is there potentially some kind of performance deficit, meaning that our environment isn't arranged to produce responses even though the learner does have these responses in their repertoire? Um, and so we might use this assessment then, we would take a step back from what we are currently teaching and we would use this assessment to figure out what we would do next. So we'll arrange a couple of conditions um, to evaluate is this potential, is the prompt dependent behavior perhaps a skill deficit? Is it a performance deficit? Um, once we have that, an that answer, so to speak, um, then we would use that information to guide how we would change the intervention that we're currently doing to continue to move forward with it. So um, it's a, 
that's a different use of these assessments in terms of not necessarily designing the intervention from scratch, but designing a, a engaging in a problem solving process to to identify a solution to that problem um, if what you're using is not producing the outcomes that you're looking for. I love that. And I think it speaks to the utility of the assessment. I imagine many clinicians reading this paper, listening to this podcast, probably have a lot of clients that maybe don't have ideal or uh, the best possible, most efficient, most effective instruction they possibly could have rather than, okay, we're going to restart everything with this client. You might, you might utilize these assessments to target specific areas of the, of the learner's instruction that potentially can be optimized. Absolutely. And, and we're trying to, um, prevent uh, what I think has been occurring for a while um, in terms of an arbitrary selection of um, modifications that people can make to treatment um, that may or may not be based on the reason why the learner isn't making progress. And so um, in the past, I think particularly before these assessments um, were more widely available in the literature and where people were perhaps using them more often and or using them for this purpose, we would oftentimes see that people would I think arbitrarily select a solution. So for example, if the learner isn't responding to the intervention, they might say, well, let's try differential reinforcement or let's try using an error correction procedure. Um, and that may or may not make sense to do based on why the learner isn't acquiring the skill. So differential reinforcement would work really well if the learner is um, perhaps not acquiring that skill. Maybe they do have that skill um, and we're just not seeing it because the conditions aren't arranged to favor responding independently versus uh, favor responding after a prompt and then differential reinforcement would make a lot of sense to implement in that context um, if the learner um, already has the skill and uh, we haven't arranged an effective reinforcer adding an error correction isn't going to help um, so um, in the past I have observed um, uh, a lot of arbitrary selections of modifications. And I think these assessments can be really helpful in terms of identifying how would we modify this intervention in a way based on the learner and their needs for this intervention. Um, and that can save a lot of time instead of going through a process of trying one thing and it doesn't work and then trying another and it doesn't work. Um, and so these assessments can be really useful for that purpose. I love that. Uh, when I when I teach a treatment class, I like to show my students a metaphor, which is if you, if you were caring for a plant and one morning you get up and, and the plant seems to be dying. I, I'm not good with plants and I honestly don't know why I choose this metaphor, but from my like really lay, really uneducated viewpoint, there are maybe five or six different things you can potentially do to try to revive your plant, right? It could be the water, it could be the temperature, it could be like pests, could be the soil. I'm sure there are other ones that I'm not thinking of. My students always help me. It's always an open-ended question. So they're the ones that come up with the, the solutions, <laughs> not me. But if you were just to, okay, my plan is dying. I'm just going to try something. I'm going to try changing the water. How long do you have to wait to figure out if the water was the issue, right? With, yes. Again, I don't know, a plant, let's say two weeks, three weeks. Cool. So you spend two or three weeks testing the water. Let's say that that didn't work out. You then spend two, three weeks, four weeks testing the temperature. It still didn't bounce back, so on and so forth. How long does it take you to figure out what's going on with your plant if you don't do an assessment and just figure out what the issue is before you start trying things? Yes. And if we extrapolate that out to a client 
with learning difficulties in the the magnitude or the the the, the sheer number of possible interventions and different ways of interacting you're never going to figure it out it's going to take 10 lifetimes if you're just simply guessing as to what you should be doing next you should be doing an assessment and figuring out where to prioritize your time absolutely um I agree. I think that you can spend a lot of time doing something that isn't working all the while the learner isn't making progress. Um, and that, you know, that's one of the reasons why functional analyses were um, designed and, um, and are in use so that we aren't just arbitrarily selecting um, interventions for individuals, you know, regardless of the function of behavior. And we should be taking the same approach with skill acquisition too. We need to know why learners aren't making progress. What are those variables affecting their learning and assessments can help us identify those and then select um, how we're going to um, implement that intervention so we address that specific function of um, the deficit that is occurring in our in our intervention procedures. I love it. I love this topic so much. I could probably honestly talk about step one for the entire <laughs> hour. I think the listeners would be quite upset with me. So I should probably bump us sure. on to step two and start talking about that. So step two, identify interventions to include in the assessment. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So there are a couple of ways that um, can be really helpful to identify those interventions. A great place to start is to look at the literature. So if you are thinking about, um, I'll use an example of, of prompt dependence. If you are working with a learner who's displaying some prompt dependent behavior and you're thinking about what might those intervention conditions be that you want to include in your assessment, you can look to the literature and see how have other people um, address prompt dependent behavior in the literature, what's been successful for reducing prompt dependent behavior. Um, and that would be a great way to identify a couple of interventions. Um, another way to select um, and identify a couple of interventions, or, or maybe even one intervention, depending, I guess, on on um, on what comes out of this. But um, we work with we work in a lot of teams, so behavior analysts work in treatment teams, and that might be with schools or with other providers. Um, and as part of that team, when you are talking about an intervention that you might use with a learner, people are going to have different perspectives on what those interventions might be, and different theoretical approaches in terms of you know what kind of interventions they would use and why. Um, and so that can create a challenging dynamic when people don't necessarily agree on what that intervention should be and the approach that you should take um, when identifying an intervention. Um, and I think these assessments can be really useful for that purpose too, because if, for example, um, uh, another um, a person on that team says, why don't, I would like to try this intervention. I think this is going to work for this individual. And perhaps that's not a behavioral intervention and um, it is not consistent with behavioral principles. Um, rather than arguing about the validity of that intervention, you could include that in an assessment um, while also including some other interventions from the literature um, and conduct that comparison. Um, and that way you don't have to engage in that debate. You get an opportunity to see how would that intervention work with that specific learner. And then you're basing your decisions on what to do with that learner off of data as opposed to preferences or personal opinions. Um, so that's a, another way that you can identify some interventions based on um, treatment teams and recommendations of interventions to potentially use with that learner. 
Um, and sometimes we use these, uh, we also identify interventions to include in our assessments based on what we are doing in our own clinical practice. So if we've been using an intervention for a while and perhaps it's novel, so it may, might not be something that's in the literature, or maybe there um, aren't many studies on that topic in the literature and we want to see how does that intervention compare to some other interventions, we might select that intervention as well to include in the assessment. But a really important piece um, to keep in mind is how many interventions are you going to compare? Um, and typically, we wouldn't include more than five. And I say, and five is actually even kind of a high number there. But um, the reason for that is if you are, if you are alternating between too many interventions, um, not only might it be difficult for the person who is conducting that assessment to conduct it with integrity, because they have a lot of interventions to learn how to do and keep track of, um, but it's also, it, it can take a lot of time to conduct the assessment and the learner uh, may not be able to differentiate between some of those interventions. So we tend to do about two to five intervention conditions. We do like to include a control condition as well. Um, a control condition would not have any intervention components. That way we would see how does the learner respond when there are no intervention components versus when there are specific intervention components that we want to evaluate um, because we would only want to select an intervention if it was if it produced a superior outcome to a control condition. Um, so we do typically include a control condition in the assessment as well. Um, at least that's what we do, but perhaps others would, um, if they have a number of interventions and it isn't possible to include a control condition, then they can make that decision. Um, but we, we do typically include one. When you sort of prioritize the limited number of interventions you're going to end up including in the assessment. Is that something that you're, you're talking to the treatment team about to figure out what, what everyone's feedback is on as in terms of what they want to see? So maybe they really want to try out a weighted blanket or something like that. So sure, we'll include that. But in terms of like behavior analytic intervention, are you sort of looking at the preponderance of evidence in, in, the, in the literature? Yeah, great question. Um, we tend to try to find intervention components that have as little overlap as possible across conditions. So um, if, you know, we, uh, a good example, there actually is an example of this in the article as well, where if we, um, for for example, for um, if we were looking for interventions for prompt dependent behavior um, and we identify differential reinforcement. Well, differential reinforcement includes prompts, uh, but typically a prompted response would not include reinforcement for following the um, correct prompted response. So then it arranges reinforcement for independent correct responses. Whereas if we were using some kind of prompt fading procedure because we hypothesized that that individual was displaying prompt dependent behavior because they had either previously learned that skill and lost it or maybe never learn that skill to begin with, um, we would expect that that learner would need prompts in order to learn to respond correctly. And then we would want to transfer that control from the prompt to the relevant discriminative stimuli in the environment. Um, so um, in that case, we would probably arrange reinforcement for prompted responses as well as for independent responses. And if we thought including prompts at all might be the problem, then we might wanna have an intervention where there are no prompts. And so there would be no prompts. And of course, there'd be no reinforcement following those prompts because there are no prompts to begin with um, in that intervention. And so arranging those in that way Every intervention includes different components, so we can identify what are those specific components that are most important for that learner. Um, and 
Um, and then that helps us avoid having interventions that have a lot of overlapping components um, that might not be necessarily to, to include together in an assessment. So a lot of the error correction assessments um, are designed that way, where if you look at the procedures, they all kind of add specific components. They become a, what I would describe as a little more and more um, uh, labor intensive for someone to implement, um, as well as potentially restrictive in terms of the responses that are required of the learner. Um, and so there are components that are added to that to identify, you know, what are those critical components, but you wouldn't want to pick two interventions that have either exactly the same intervention components um, or too many similarities where um, uh, it might not be meaningful to include both of those in an assessment. So when we are selecting interventions, whether it be from the literature or um, you know, from a treatment team recommendation, if the treatment team said, you know, let's try a weighted vest and a weighted blanket, it's like, are both of those critical? It, you know, what are the variables that uh, might make the weight important. Um, and if both of those happen to be critical because the location of the weight might matter, then perhaps we would include those. But if it's just the weight in general, then that wouldn't be necessary to include both of those interventions. We would pick one of those and then evaluate other interventions as well. That makes a lot of sense. Not to put you on the spot with this question, but for when you're when you're beginning to narrow down the interventions and potentially looking into the literature to see what may be supported, do you have any particular process you might recommend to like your own graduate students or or clinicians on where to begin to look for potential interventions? Like a process? Do they go to Java and search keywords, or what does that look like? Yeah, great question. Um, uh, I think definitely going to, um, I don't know that we would go to a specific journal, um, but perhaps um, going to, because I think we have a lot of behavior analytic journals that um, will have um, a variety of articles that could be relevant. Um, so more so than a specific journal, I think, you know, behavioral journals would be a great place to start. Um, but certainly some key uh, word searches are, can be really helpful. So specific topics. Um, it might be if, for example, you are, I'll, I'll continue to use prompt dependence as an, an, uh, as an example, because it's helpful to have a consistent example when talking about um, these assessments. So if we were looking for interventions for prompt dependence, and we were going to look to the literature, that would be like prompt, prompt dependence or prompt dependency or um, uh, prompted responses, those would be some key terms that we might enter into, you know, some kind of search, um, whether it be through like psych info or something like that, um, and then look at what comes up, um, you know, from that search and start to kind of narrow that down. Um, and I think, you know, we, when selecting from interventions, it, it's ideal if there is, you know, the more evidence there is for an intervention, I think the more um, confidence you can have that that intervention has been replicated um, numerous times with a variety of individuals across a variety of behaviors. Um, and so that would certainly provide evidence that that intervention is a great one to evaluate. Um, but sometimes you don't have that, that good fortune and that you might be looking for um, uh, interventions and there might be next to there might be next to nothing or literally nothing in the literature and then in that case um, you have a bigger task on your hand in terms of identifying some interventions so um, in terms of how to go about that literature search I think for sure looking in behavioral journals having key search terms can be really helpful and then looking at you know how much evidence is there for various interventions that you are um, that you are finding in that search that's very very helpful 
Thank you. That segues us into step three to identify the target behavior. Can you speak mm -hmm. about that? You do need to select um, dependent variables or target behaviors that you're going to measure. Um, and that's going to depend a lot on the topic that you have selected. So um, for example, if you are um, looking for interventions for prompt dependent behavior, you will likely want to include a measure of independent correct responses. Um, that's probably going to be your primary dependent variable um, because obviously you're looking to have responses occur independently as opposed to following a prompt, but you would likely also include um, perhaps as a measure the type of prompt that you're using or how often you have to use that prompt. So that might be something that you measure as well. You might care about latency to respond, especially for something like for someone who engages in prompt dependent behavior. If your intervention um, increased the likelihood that that individual responded, but it took them a really long time to engage in that response, that wouldn't be a very useful intervention um, or it could decrease the utility of that intervention and certainly decrease the efficiency. So something like latency might be a variable you'd want to consider. Um, so those are some key um, uh, aspects of or dimensions of behavior that you might measure or specific behaviors you might measure. Um, and we also include, um, when considering dependent variables, we also include measures of efficiency. Um, because when using these assessments, our two primary goals are to identify interventions that are efficacious, as well as interventions that are efficient. And it is commonly the case that we will find multiple interventions that are efficacious, but certain ones might be far more efficient than another. Um, and so we also want to include uh, measures of efficiency. And um, historically, people have looked at efficiency in terms of sessions to mastery. So how many sessions um, does it take for the learner to learners responding to reach some kind of criterion that you've established, some kind of mastery criterion. Um, the problem with that measure, although it's certainly useful and, and people still use it, is that depending on the interventions you're comparing, it can be like comparing apples to oranges because the the um, number of exposures you might have to the stimulus um, per trial could vary. The amount of time it takes to conduct that trial can vary. Um, the components that are included in each trial can vary considerably. And so you don't get a good sense of the, it's, it, sessions to mastery is not sensitive enough to capture all of the ways in which interventions might vary and produce differences in efficiency. So we also um, might measure um, the number of exposures to a target to mastery, or even just what's the amount of time it took to teach that skill, um, which can be, um, I think, a really meaningful measure as well. So that's also um, a dependent variable that we include in these assessments. Do you see any major risks for a potential issue within this step that people make common mistakes people may make when selecting target behaviors? Yeah, I think that um, you want to make sure that you include the, um, the measures that are going to be most meaningful for the outcome that you're looking for. So if you're looking to decrease um, prompt dependent behavior, obviously independent correct responses is going to be a key variable there. Uh, I don't think someone would miss that, but if they did and they were measuring, you know, how many prompts did it take or, or other measures like that, those are also useful measures, but um, sometimes I think people can miss like what are the most important things um, that you're looking for. And a good example, and this is different from prompt dependence, but a good example, and this is one that we actually um, include a lot, particularly more recently in our error correction assessments, is whether the learner is attending to the stimuli when we represent it, um, mm -hmm. especially if we're representing it you know, once or multiple times. Um, 
because we are seeing some um, instances in which when a learner is exposed to repeated instances of error correction, um, that they may try to respond to that stimulus without looking at it. So they're just waiting for us to start to hold up, you know, a material and then they have that response, but we haven't even showed them the material yet. Um, and so um, there are instances where if you see that pattern of responding, you want to make sure you include that type of measure um, because that would be a concern. So if when you're working with someone, um, you're going to use this assessment either from to identify an intervention from the beginning or in that problem solving approach, think about what do you want the learner to do when you're using these interventions? What behaviors do you want them to display, like attending and you know responding in a certain period of time? Um, and make sure you are including those in your um, assessment. And then sometimes I think people get a little overambitious and they want to collect a lot of data on a variety of responses. And if you can do that and you can do that, um, if your therapist can do that effectively, that's phenomenal. Um, that just increases the burden on the person who's conducting that assessment to measure so many behaviors at once. And so there is, again, a cost benefit assessment or analysis, so to speak, of what do you need to measure? And then what's, what are all the extra things that you want to measure but might make it too difficult to conduct the assessment if you include all of those dependent variables? And so I think sometimes people get a little overambitious and want to include too many measures and then it makes it hard to do the assessment. Right. You mean a behavior analyst might want to collect too much data? That's the thing? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of that as well. Uh, as am it's I. so tough to narrow it down. We always have so many questions. I want to look at so many things. But yeah, that makes sense, it, especially if you're doing these, these assessment, the treatment assessments within a, a typical clinic where like the, the clinician is going to be collecting the data themselves. You don't have a army of people standing behind them with clipboards collecting data on everything. You probably want to streamline that data collection system as best as possible. Absolutely. So that's, that's our target behavior step, step three. Step four is select the experimental design. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, so experimental designs um, may not uh, be as often used in practice. I think that they should be. I think that they're very helpful. Um, in the context of an assessment, it is very important to use um, a design that matches the assessment. And the good news is um, that the lion's share of these assessments will have a specific experimental design, and that is called an adapted alternating treatments design. Um, for people who aren't in the area of skill acquisition, or even if they are, that might not be a design that they've heard of before, and it oftentimes is a design that people um, confuse for what is uh, more commonly known as the alternating treatments design. So I'll just take a moment to differentiate between those. Um, in an alternating treatments design, you tend to see that type of design used for um, in an assessment of problem behavior. And you might be comparing two different interventions, such as FCT and um, or functional communication training and non-contingent reinforcement. And you are measuring the effects of um, both of those interventions on the rate of aggression use as an example. Um, and so you will alternate between sessions of each of those interventions and look at the rate of aggression um, in, in both those interventions across, across sessions. Um, 
And the difference between that design and the adapted alternating treatments design is that you cannot have the same interventions um, being used with the same dependent, with the, with the exact same skill, because you wouldn't know um, whether one, if you were teaching one skill and you were alternating between two interventions, you wouldn't know which of those interventions resulted in mastery of that skill. So if I was trying to teach you to spell 10 words, that's a weird example, but nevertheless, um, and I use one intervention on one day and another intervention on another day and you learn to spell those 10 words, I would have no idea which of those interventions worked or if collectively, they, they maybe they only worked because you used both of those. So um, the adapted alternating treatments design um, is adapted in the sense that there are a unique set of targets that are assigned to each intervention condition. And that allows for an analysis of the effects of that intervention on that set of specific targets. Um, and that's where um, when we go to the next step of selecting the skills and targets, um, it's really important that we think about how to design that um, and be careful about that. But the adapted alternating treatments design has a unique set of targets that are assigned to each intervention condition. And then you're looking, you are conducting the comparison of those interventions and looking at which one of those interventions results in mastery of that set of skills or that specific set of targets first. Um, and so um, the adapted alternating treatments design is really well suited to this type of assessment because you do have different sets of targets that are assigned to each intervention condition. You alternate between those intervention conditions um, on a session by session basis um, and see which one results in, um, you know, in, in learning first. Um, so that, that uh, design is, is really well matched um, for use in this assessment. As you said at the introduction of, of the nine steps, when you talked about step four, you said the adapted alternating treatments design is probably the only, I shouldn't say the only, but the primary design you're going to use when looking at skill acquisition. So things like, as you were saying, the multi-element isn't necessarily going to work because of the carryover. Would you say even like a, even a simple ABAB design probably is also going to experience the irreversibility of the, of the skills the client's acquiring? Yeah, the, um, certainly if you were looking for a reversal of they've learned something and then they, <laughs> they no longer display that skill, that would be challenging unless you're looking at um, perhaps a performance deficit. And then in that case, you may be able to get that outcome from a reversal design. Um, but if you were, you know, when you're talking about a comparison of interventions, the downside of uh, design, even if let's say you have A, B, C, B, C, and A is your baseline and B and C are different interventions, the problem with that type of design is that if you were to implement intervention B first and then move on to intervention C, the learner has already had a, a period of exposure to that one intervention. And if you, and you typically will, have the same type of skill, even though there are different targets, you'll be working on the same type of skill. It could be that every time you, you teach a set of targets, the learner is acquiring that that set of stimuli a little bit more quickly over time. So mm. if you start with intervention B and then go to intervention C, intervention C may take fewer sessions or less time from the fact of having already been exposed to um, ex instruction in that particular skill area. So um, that, that really isn't an ideal design. In addition, you don't know if perhaps some aspect of being exposed to intervention B for a lengthy period of time will carry over to intervention C. Perhaps the learner has um, acquired how to attend to these materials from intervention B, but intervention C did not include an attending component that if you used it without intervention B, it, you know, intervention C wouldn't work, attending would be really low. 
um, you, you wouldn't know that because you've already been exposed to an intervention where you established some prerequisite skill that's important and that you would need to benefit from intervention C. So as you're alternating, it's better to alternate between those interventions um, and have that rapid alternation um, so that um, the learner is exposed to um, each one of those interventions um, in a, sim a similar number of times um, so that there isn't any type of you know, specific learning history for a specific intervention potentially having an effect on another intervention. But occasionally you might find, and you may wonder, and this is why we include the control condition, you may wonder or um, if you have a lot of interventions and they all look similar in terms of they all look similarly efficacious, um, if you don't include a control condition, there could be a concern of, of carryover and um, not being sure was there some? Was there um, something else that happened? Some extraneous variable which affected all the interventions, or could there be some kind of carryover? So having a control condition or some kind of ongoing baseline condition can help you identify that that isn't the case. Because if there was carryover, you would expect that to carry over into the um, condition that that treatment effect to carry over into the condition that doesn't have an intervention in place to begin with. So when you see low levels of responding in a control or baseline condition, but high levels of responding in all the intervention conditions, then um, that helps you kind of rule out that there's unlikely to be carryover, at least in the sense that if you were to see it, it would probably have occurred in the control condition. Um, and perhaps all those interventions are effective. Um, and that is why we typically include a control condition um, because sometimes all the interventions work and we wanna be sure that they actually are working and they're not just working because there is that carryover or perhaps some kind of extraneous variable that happened to occur at the time that we conducted the assessment. Like a child suddenly starts medicine medication and nobody tells us and then we do the assessment and all the interventions work great and then we find out oh no a, a medication began at that point in time which doesn't mean that that is responsible for the effects but we can't control for that at that point in time um, but we would be able to control for that if in a control condition um, we also saw well the, you know suddenly the individuals responding there too even though there's no intervention in place there that would tell us that we really haven't learned anything from the assessment there's something else going on um, and we either need to figure out what that is and conduct the assessment again or um, try to identify you know what's happening that's such a help explanation of, of that design. I have some follow-up questions related to it, but step five really complements, I think, step four and yes. talks a little bit more about the design and some considerations around the, the skills and the targets. So maybe I'll, I'll sort of let you talk a little bit about step five and then I'll ask some follow-up if that's okay. Absolutely. That sounds good. So step five is to select your skill that you're going to include in the assessment and then the targets um, uh, from that skill area that you are going to assign to each intervention condition. Um, and this is a very important step um, in these assessments because um, if you happen to select um, targets that differ in terms of um, maybe how difficult they are to acquire or um, how discrepant they are from one another, and I would refer to that as um, the disparity of the, that stimulus set, um, then you could create a condition where those targets are harder to acquire and then they're assigned to a specific intervention and that will affect the outcome that, of that intervention. So for this step, you wanna select a skill area um, and then pick some targets. And so the first step is to select the skill. So when, when doing these assessments, um, you might wanna think about what's a skill or a set of skills that you're going to teach 
um, frequently, and that will give you the biggest bang for your buck when doing this assessment. So there are certain areas where we will provide a lot of instruction, like conditional discrimination training or TAC training or uh, man training or intro teaching intraverbals, um, as well as a variety of other um, skills as well. But we will pick one of those skills. I'll use tax as an example. Um, so we would pick the skill of tax, which sometimes people describe as labeling. Um, and so we would um, select that as a skill. And then that we would select targets from that skill area to assign to each intervention condition. Um, and it's important that we take some steps to make sure that we equate those targets so that we have a fair comparison of our intervention. So there aren't a set of targets that are more difficult to learn, um, thereby um, making an intervention less likely to be efficacious or efficient. So there are some steps that one can take to um, equate those targets. And one of those steps is to consider um, the um, auditory stimuli, like how much overlap is there in those auditory stimuli. So if I was going to, if I wanted to teach tax of cat and hat, if those are two important um, targets that I um, thought were important for that learner, um, and I wanted to teach both of those, I could certainly do so. I just wouldn't include them in the same condition because they rhyme, um, and that might create a, um, a slight disadvantage to that condition where the learner is saying cat instead of hat or hat instead of cat, and it slows down learning a little bit. So I would just put those in two different conditions. So we tend to look for, um, tar we tend to try to assign targets to conditions that have different beginning sounds as well as um, that they don't rhyme. Um, and so um, if we find anything that has similar beginning sounds or rhyme, then we just put those in different conditions. We also want to look at the number of syllables um, in the targets um, because we oftentimes work with learners who do have some difficulty with articulation. Um, and if there are too many syllables, then it might make a little bit more difficult for the learner to acquire that skill. Um, for example, um, if we had cat bird and dog in one set and we had hippopotamus uh, rhinoceros and naked mole rat in another set um, that second set might be harder for some of our learners to acquire um, not only because those are somewhat unusual animals um, but they those there are a lot of syllables um, in those um, tags so we try to make sure that we balance the number of syllables across sets as well so for example we might pick um, you know, all one syllable targets for all of the conditions. Um, and that would be something that we would consider. Or, you know, there can certainly be more syllables as well, but you just want to make sure that the syllables are equated. Um, so that's another variable to consider. If you can counterbalance targets, that can be great too. Um, so counterbalancing means that if you assign a set of targets to one intervention condition for one learner, then you would change the assignments of those targets to different intervention conditions for a different learner. Sometimes that's possible. Um, if you have learners who have similar intervention needs, sometimes that's not possible if the learners are really at a different place uh, in terms of you know, their instruction and their targets wouldn't make sense to counterbalance because they have very different types of targets that are appropriate for them to include in the assessment. So if you can counterbalance, that's another way um, to make sure that the outcomes that you get from the assessment are not based on the stimuli per se, but on that intervention specifically and the effects of that intervention on, um, on the individual's learning. So that's another way that you can equate targets. 
Um, and then a, another consideration is um, what those stimuli look like. So we would, um, I mentioned that we, in this example, that we would be doing some kind of tact training. Uh, we would want to look at what those stimuli look like and make sure there's not a lot of overlapping visual components as well. So um, for example, we probably wouldn't pick a red ball and a red apple and put those together because they look really similar. Um, and if we wanted to teach both of those and it was important that they happen to be that color, then we would just put them in different sets. So those are some examples of ways that um, you can equate targets to make sure that, um, or to try to um, have similar levels of um, difficulty, so to speak, to teach those targets um, across interventions. To tie in sort of both step four and five together with a single question, after you've created your, or designed your, let me say that again, once you've selected your experimental design, and you've equated your conditions, something you talked about sort of repeatedly in step four is that rapid alternation between the experimental conditions. Could you describe what that would look like to someone who maybe have not, has not utilized this design? You bet. Um, so I'm going to, I'll, I'll use an example with A, B, and C, because I think that would be easiest. So, um, when we um, begin the assessment um, with the adapted alternating treatments design, all of the conditions, so A, B, and C, there's a session of each one of those conducted once before we randomly alternate them and conduct them again. So for example, session one might be um, intervention A, session two might be intervention B, session three might be intervention C, then we would alternate those, session four would be intervention B, session five would be intervention C, and session six would be intervention A, then we would alternate them again and continue to conduct those until one of those interventions meets a mastery criterion. So for example, if intervention A met the mastery criterion, if responding met the mastery criterion, we would stop intervention A and continue to alternate intervention B and C until either one of those interventions um, also reaches, in, until both of those interventions either reach the mastery criteria as well, or um, they reach some kind of discontinuation criterion. And then at that point, we would stop the assessment. Is there any particular rule on how many sessions you could potentially do back to back? Like if, if you're looking at A, B, C, could you run them literally all back to back and then that's it for the day? Or could you do them multiple times in a day? Are there any guidelines for something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we try to do, um, we try to make sure that there are, there's an alternation of each one of those sessions um, or each one of those conditions per day. Um, so one alternation, um, so A, B, and C um, for sure per day. Um, you know, depending on um, the length of the learner's appointment and depending on what else you have going on, it may not be possible to do more than that. That just means the assessment will take a little bit longer. Um, but if you have, you know, a longer session or if you're trying to complete this assessment, um, you know, in a shorter period of time, you could certainly do multiple sessions um, of each condition per day. But there is a cost, you know, benefit analysis there. Of, I wouldn't want to do the entire assessment in one day. I would be concerned about the potential for um uh, what those outcomes look like in one day being replicable and when we were teaching a skill across a lot of days. So um, I do think spanning that inter that assessment over, you know, several days can be helpful or potentially longer than that. Um, 
and to some extent, um, you know, just based on the other types of activities we would be working on in an appointment, I don't even know that we would ha necessarily have the time to complete the assessment in one appointment unless the learner acquires all of the targets very quickly. <laughs> so if they acquire, you know, every, if it takes, you know, but two to three sessions and then the assessment is done, then I suppose it could happen in a day. Um, but um, most of the time that's not the case and most of the time we try to design the assessment so that wouldn't be the case and I could talk a little bit more about that in a minute um, but we do want to conduct it across days so we would probably limit the number of sessions so it could span across a couple at least a couple of days it's probably a good problem to have if you're gonna get mastery after a couple of sessions sure <laughs> not likely but a good one if it pops up should we segue into step six and, and, and sort of continue along the idea of equating parts of the conditions? Step six is equ equating the non-critical procedures across the conditions. Yes. So that's really important because when you are designing the assessment, you have selected your intervention conditions based on those specific components that you are interested in evaluating. Um, so I'll go back to the prompt dependence assessment. Um, if you know, we want to look at what are the effects of including prompts and what are the effects of including reinforcers um, for prompted correct responses, those are the two variables that we've manipulated within our interventions we've selected um, to identify the effects of those. So um, when we conduct the assessment, we wanna make sure that, the, that all other aspects of the, of the procedures are um, consistent across conditions. So we, for example, um, we would wanna have the same number of trials across every um, condition. We would want to use the same mastery criterion across every condition. We would want to make sure if we're using reinforcers that we use similarly efficacious reinforcers across every condition. Um, if we vary some of those aspects of um, intervention, then it becomes difficult to identify what is responsible for the, for the outcomes of that assessment. For example, if we varied the mastery criterion and we said, you know, one condition, we're gonna use a mastery criterion of two sessions in a row at 100% and in another one we're going to use five sessions in a row at 80% and in another one we're going to have one at 100%. Um, if the one at 100% reached mastery first, is it because of the mastery criterion or is it because that intervention is um, more efficacious? Well, efficacious as well as potentially more efficient than the other interventions. So unless the mastery criterion is what we're interested in evaluating, that shouldn't vary across the conditions. So, um, so we try to keep all those aspects of intervention the same. Um, and that way the only, um, the only parts of the interventions that vary are those pieces that we have selected to vary based on those being components of intervention that we're interested in evaluating. That makes sense. That's just good analytic framework, right? Very one, one critical variable at a time or one, one part of the condition at a time. Yes. Uh, step seven is design templates for data collection. Could you speak about mm -hmm. that? Yes. So this is an opportunity for people to get creative um, and to get creative as you would like. So you can use a standard data collection sheet that you use for a variety of programs, and of course, that's perfectly fine. Um, oftentimes, if that were the case, then um, it might be um, that there are aspects of that data sheet in certain intervention conditions that you that the therapist would or would not fill out. So, for example, um, I'll, I'll go back to the prompt dependence assessment. Um, we had a condition where there were no prompts, and so if we used a standard data sheet that had prompted correct responses, a column for that where someone fills it out. Um, 
that the therapist would just have to ignore that for that condition. Um, and that's fine. They can certainly do that. Um, but there's an opportunity to um, get creative and make individualized data collection um, forms or sheets. Um, and this can be helpful for a variety of reasons. One is that if they're individualized, you're that data sheet only shows the specific variables that you're collecting for that condition. Um, and the reason that can be helpful is then someone doesn't have to try to remember, is this, is this something I should be taking data on? Is this part of this intervention condition um, or isn't it? Um, and so it's nice to have a data sheet that gives you some clues into not only what you're collecting data on, but how the interventions vary. I say that too, because I'll give an example. It's really, it can be really challenging to alternate between error correction procedures that have a lot of overlapping components. And I, I find that to be one where therapists um, might have difficulty conducting those with integrity consistently, um, especially if you're using the same data sheet where it captures every single one of those intervention conditions. So if you have um, a procedure where you are having repeated responses, you probably are going to have a section where you are going to score those. But if you're not repeating, if you don't have additional opportunities to respond, then you have to ignore that. And so the therapist might have difficulty remembering, is this the condition where I'm supposed to do that? Or is this a condition where I'm not? And of course, you would likely have protocols that someone would um, be able to reference um, before they conduct the session. But I think data sheets are a great way to go about helping the therapist identify what should you collect data on and what are the important components of this intervention. And so this can be highly individualized to, to um, highlight those features of the intervention that are unique so that they don't make errors in the intervention as well as don't collect unnecessary data or forget to collect important data because they are using one standard data sheet in a variety of ways. That makes a lot of sense. And I think I'm sure a lot of clinics could have a template that could just be adjusted relatively easy to make it a little bit more individualized and get some of the benefits of having a specific data collection sheet to sort of prompt some of those behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's helpful to know. And that sort of wraps the prep part of the intervention assessment. And it brings us into step eight, which is actually conducting the assessment. So could you speak about that? Yes. So the hard work is done in terms of designing <laughs> that assessment. Um, and I, I do recognize that it, it is hard to design an assessment from scratch. Um, uh, one thing that's important to keep in mind, though, is once you have that design, you can use it with a lot of learners. Um, and so I do realize there's an upfront cost to designing these assessments. Um, but once they are designed, they can be used with a variety of people uh, or with a variety of learners. Um, so now you're on to the part of conducting the assessment. So um, this is where um, Um, your design and you have all your materials and where your design becomes really important because you want to make sure that um, with the adapted alternating treatments design that you are alternating between those sessions and doing so in a way where the learner is exposed to every condition the same number of times. Um, And this is where uh, we oftentimes use a session log um, or an assessment log that helps us um, keep track of what we have already done and the order in which we are going to um, conduct those sessions. Um, In the article, there is an example of what that log can look like. So interested readers can refer to that. Um, But oftentimes um, what we will do when we begin these assessments is we will, um, let's say again, we have intervention A, B, and C. So we'll uh, create a set 
an assessment log that um, begins with the baseline. So we frequently start with the baseline, meaning there is no intervention yet, um, but we do have our different sets of targets. So we're going to measure how the individual responds to those sets of targets when no intervention is in place. Um, that's really important because if, if the learner had a much higher level of responding in one condition versus the others, we would want to throw out that set of targets and pick a new set so that the learner is starting at the exact same place for every condition. So once we have that baseline and we see stable levels of responding that look similar across conditions, um, then we're going to alternate, continue to alternate between those um, interventions. Now we have introduced the interventions and we're gonna alternate between those and our assessment log helps us keep track of that. So um, we would randomize the order. For example, you know, session A or intervention A is session one and intervention B is session two. It's written in that order in that assessment log so that the person who picks up that log for that day can see exactly what's already been done, where are we at now, and what am I going to do for today? And that gives them that opportunity to continue with the assessment. So we will alternate between those um, intervention um, conditions until, um, as I said before, responding reaches a mastery criterion. So we want to identify what that mastery criterion is going to be. And if responding reaches that mastery criterion for one condition, we stop that, keep going with the remaining conditions until either those also reach a mastery criterion or they reach a discontinuation criterion. And so for the purposes of conducting this assessment, um, it is important to establish in advance what your mastery criterion is going to be, as well as come up with a discontinuation criterion. And sometimes people um, are worried about using a discontinuation criterion because they want, they're conducting this assessment and they want to know what interventions work, but they're also assigning targets to these interventions that they want to teach the individual. I mean, the nice thing about this assessment is that instruction occurs and the, the learner actually acquires a lot of targets within the context of this assessment, which is great. Um, and so some people might be worried about discontinuing the intervention, um, but the reason to establish a discontinuation criterion is so that a learner isn't exposed to intervention procedures that aren't efficacious for an indefinite period of time. Um, so it is important to pick that, uh, to pick that discontinuation criterion. There's a lot of variability in the literature of what those criteria look like. Um, some people select double the number of sessions. Some people select a certain number of sessions past the point of mastery. I think that can be highly individualized or up to the practitioner to decide what will be best in their clinic and for their learners. Um, but I do recommend um, selecting a discontinuation criterion so that the assessment does not go on indefinitely um, until it reaches some kind of conclusion where you can then differentiate between those procedures that were efficacious and efficient from those procedures that were not. The idea that discontinuation criteria is such a good idea. I personally find that I always <laughs> have a tendency of wanting to hang out an assessment for, for longer than perhaps I should because I'm just trying to narrow in as, as specific of information as I should, but it's a cost-benefit ratio. Like I could spend you know, a client's entire life assessing various things related to their behavior and, and intervention, but ultimately we need to get them moving into sort of full-time instruction and, and intervention at some point. Yes. A couple of things from your explanation that I want to just touch on. You, you mentioned like that there's a table describing this in, in the article. And I want to emphasize that there are multiple tables within this paper that are very, very helpful and a very quick resource. So if you're listening and you're trying to keep all the different steps straight, there's a table right in the paper to pull to 
it's going to go through everything. So it's really nicely set up for that reason alone. And then the other thing I wanted to quickly touch base on is at the beginning of your explanation of, of conducting the assessment, you specify, yeah, it, it can take a bit of time to do this initially, but once you design an assessment for one client, it may be applicable to other clients. And are you saying like, for example, to stick with our sort of prompt dependency case that we've sort of been talking about throughout, if you've designed an assessment to look at different prompt strategies to use, that should remain relatively consistent across many clients. And so you should be able to test the same type of prompt procedures across multiple clients, which will save you a lot of time in the preparation. Yes, I think you can. Um, certainly, if there are, um, let's say, new interventions emerge that, you know, show a lot of promise and perhaps could be even better than some of the interventions that you've already included in the assessment, you might want to update some of those conditions on a, um, you know, on a periodic basis. Um, but certainly, if you have identified those variables that you're most interested in, um, that you think are most relevant for prompt dependent behavior, you can continue to conduct that assessment um, you know, with any learner for whom that would be relevant um, until either you, you know, modify something or you no longer need to use that assessment with any of your learners. So um, it, it, like I said, there is definitely some work that goes into designing these, but um, they are useful for the long haul. That's very, very helpful. And that brings us to the last step, step nine, the use of the assessment results to guide practice. We would, we would use the results of the assessment to guide what we do in practice, but it's important to consider um, if we need to um, replicate the assessment more than once. So I gave the example of conducting the assessment, but I haven't yet talked about if we need to replicate it. Um, so I did mention when conducting the assessment that we want to have a discontinuation criterion. And if you um, have that in place and some of the intervention conditions reach that discontinuation criterion, something that can be done to get an opportunity to um, um, uh, see the effects of an intervention that's already been shown to be efficacious and efficient, you can move on to a final phase of the assessment that um, is a best treatment phase. And so you use that treatment that worked the best, the one that already was efficacious and was most efficient. Um, and then for all of the targets that haven't yet been um, acquired, you can assign those targets now to that intervention condition and look for replication of those effects. So for example, if I was conducting a prompt dependence assessment, and I found that differential reinforcement was efficacious and efficient, but prompt fading and an extended response interval were not, um, Then I and they reached a discontinuation criterion, I would stop um, with those conditions, but I would take those um, targets or skills that I had um, assigned to those um, intervention conditions, and I would expose all of those to differential reinforcement and see, can I replicate the effects of differential reinforcement with those targets? Um, and if the answer is yes, that's exciting. Um, certainly there are, you know, more powerful and more um, well-controlled um, replications to conduct, um, but that's a good outcome from the sense of replicating the effects of that intervention with another set of stimuli, especially a set of stimuli that have been exposed to a less than ideal intervention already, which is usually when you're talking about prompt dependence, something that has already occurred for the learner. They've been exposed to some less than ideal interventions that has created some prompt dependent behavior to begin with, and then you're going to try to add a new one, or you're going to try 
try to design a new intervention to address that. So there is some um, value in um, seeing that that intervention is powerful enough to overcome the lack of success of those other intervention conditions to teach those skills. So you can have that best treatment phase. That's great to be able to replicate that intervention. And then at that point, it's important to make a, it's helpful to make a decision about what to do next. So if you have time and if you have resources and you can replicate that assessment again with new sets of stimuli, then um, definitely that would be something that would be helpful to do and see, will you get the same outcome again when you replicate the assessment? Um, if I'm going to be using these results for a lengthy period of time, I think replicating the assessment can be really helpful. Um, I might have an assessment schedule, let's say, for example, of every six months or maybe even every year. If I'm going to use that, that intervention for that long, I do want to make sure um, that there's some consistency in the assessment results. If I'm going to conduct this assessment and think, well, you know, I'll use that intervention for maybe a couple of months, and then I think I'm going to do the assessment again. At that point, you know, is it beneficial to replicate the assessment just to then replicate it again in a couple of months? I'm not so sure. I think that's up to someone to decide. In that case, I might use the results of one comparison, especially if I have that best treatment phase, which results in um, a replication of the effects of that intervention. I might use that for a shorter period of time and then conduct the assessment again at some interval down the road. Um, so that's an important consideration because um, we do want to make sure that the assessment results are replicable and that whatever we, whatever we have identified as an efficacious and efficient intervention is truly efficacious and efficient and isn't identified as such based on some way that we um, uh, selected targets and maybe they weren't equated in the way that we thought that they were. Um, so replicating can be, can be beneficial um, and certainly is recommended if you're going to be using the assessment um, to guide your practices for lengthy periods of time. That's very, very helpful. You said something sort of offhandedly, but it, I think it, it brought up a really interesting question for me which you were talking about sort of target history and how that may or may not create some complications with responsiveness to intervention. When you're designing this assessment, should you be thinking about utilizing novel targets at first, or should you be utilizing targets that the client sort of already has in their, their IEP or, or sort of their, their primary goals? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we, tep we tend to select novel targets um, so that they don't have a history of exposure to um, various interventions. Um, well, at least that we know of. <laughs> that's difficult to do. It's, you know, it's probably impossible, honestly, to determine what somebody has or has not been exposed to. But we do tend to select novel targets unless um, we are using the assessment in that problem-solving type of approach where the individual already has been exposed to an intervention with that set of stimuli. The intervention didn't go as planned. Now we're trying to figure out what to do next. We conduct the assessment. We um, we actually wouldn't, we probably wouldn't use that set of targets. We would probably select a new set of targets and then um, we would conduct that assessment and then go back to that set of targets with whatever intervention we, um, you know, identified in the assessment as being effective and efficient. Um, but it, it could be the case if, um, if for example, um, you are, uh, maybe the individual is exposed to instruction, a lot of instruction in a specific area and they have a whole lot of targets, um, let's say, for example, TAC training, and they have been exposed to 50 targets of TAC training and it, the intervention just isn't working. Um, it, it, 
you you could use those targets for the in the context of the assessment. My concern would be what what would potentially occur if the learner has a particular error pattern with certain targets and not with others. Um, this is actually um, a separate topic um, that we have conducted um, a study on <laughs> to identify the effects of um, selecting targets that have error patterns, whereas other targets do not. For example, if every time I show you a pen, you tell me that's a pencil, um, and I'm trying to teach you, actually, it's a pen, um, we have found, um, at least in a recent study that we conducted, that a history of a very persistent error pattern can slow um, learning um, for that target um, versus if if um, an individual just, let's say if I show you a pen and you say it's a book and it's a bed and it's a cat or it's hair and you just, you, know, you have a variety of different incorrect responses, no specific pattern of responding, um, then we might not see that be as impactful for learning. Um, Maybe not necessarily in terms of the efficacy of the intervention, but definitely in terms of efficiency. Um, and again, we are looking at efficacy and efficiency. So we um, tend to select novel targets so that we hopefully do not have a specific target that has a particular error pattern. And now, based on some of our even more recent research, if we are conducting an assessment and as we are um, trying to come up with some targets that we're going to include in the assessment, we do some probes to see how does the learner respond. If the learner has a specific error pattern to a specific stimulus and that is pervasive in the probes, we might take that target out and not include it in the assessment because we don't want it to bias some kind of intervention in terms of efficiency. Um, that's very new research. So I, I, you know, that's, that's what we're doing right now. It does not mean that there is sufficient evidence to suggest that that would be something everybody else would do. Um, Nevertheless, we try to pick novel targets where we would not see some kind of disadvantage if it, that target is included in a specific intervention condition. That's fascinating. Is that research available anywhere yet? Um, it is submitted for publication and we are waiting on, a, on an editorial decision. Okay, so stay tuned listeners. Hopefully that'll <laughs> be available soon and you can check that out. This conversation has been amazing. I, I could literally pick your brain about this all day, but I, pro I want to be respectful of your time and, and wrap things up here. Are there any pieces of this, the steps of the assessment-based intervention that we've missed that you wanted to, to say anything else about? Yes, um, one of the things that we have not talked about is um, how to use the results to guide um, intervention practices with a variety of skills. So um, previously we had talked about how you select a skill and then you select targets from that skill area to include in the assessment. But what that means is that we have evaluated the effects of those interventions on teaching that specific skill. So right now there is there really isn't um, a body of literature to identify will these results generalize from one skill to other skills. So if we conduct the assessment with TAC training, would we be able to see that the same interventions that are efficacious and efficient for TAC training would be efficacious and efficient for um, conditional discrimination training or um, if we were teaching interverbals? Um, so that's something that we don't know yet. Um, and so that's an important consideration. Um, you, If you are going to use one of these assessments, um, um, and you um, want to have these results be applicable to other skill areas, there are a couple of options. You could conduct the assessment and then try that intervention with other skill areas and see what happens, see if it's efficacious and efficient. You know, you have 
with the assessment, you have a general idea of how long it takes at least to teach that skill. Um, that doesn't mean that two skills will take the same amount of time to teach, but you would hopefully get an idea of um, what might be expected for that learner to acquire a specific skill. And is that intervention condition producing outcomes that are like the other outcomes you've seen before or discrepant from those? Um, and if that if it if it appears to produce efficacious and efficient intervention, that's great. If it seems to not work as well with another skill, then then the results might not be um, applicable to other skill areas. And we we just don't know that right now. That's a really common question that I'm asked um, when I talk about this topic area. Um, and the answer is we just really don't know that. There is a study um, that was um, published by I believe it's Johnson uh, et al. It's published in Java. I cannot recall the year, um, but in that study, they did look at, um, they compared differential reinforcement procedures and looked at whether those assessment results were applicable across skill areas, and they found that they were not, um, but that is a single study that has shown that outcome. Um, for our prompt dependence assessment, when we conducted that assessment, we actually did apply those results to a variety of um, of skill areas in which prompt dependent behavior was observed and the intervention that we identified was highly efficacious and efficient. Um, unfortunately, though, that wasn't part of the publication. So, um, you know, I, I, we just don't know that answer right now. Um, I don't see that necessarily as a downside from the perspective of if these assessments were tasks, uh, were skill specific, we do spend a lot of time teaching a skill that there are certain skills where these assessments would still give me a big bang for my buck to conduct them. Um, if I'm going to do conditional discrimination training, I'm going to do that for a while. Huh. And so I can use those results for a lengthy period of time um, for my learner. So I don't view that as um, a limitation necessarily. Um, and then if I was going to conduct a different type of training and I needed to do a new assessment, I could potentially do that. Um, so that is that is an area that we just don't know enough yet. And I hope that um, we'll get some, we'll have some literature on that topic soon. If you're listening and you're looking for a thesis topic or a dissertation topic, I think we just gave it to you. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> It'd be a great research study. For people who are really interested in this topic, do you have recommendations for other articles they could check out or resources they might be interested in? Yes, there are um, a variety of um, studies that have used assessments um, to um, use assessments with learners to identify efficacious and efficient interventions um, across a variety of topics. So um, if let's say, for example, you're looking for um, an assessment that compared error correction procedures, um, one of the earlier studies in the area, although not the first, um, was conducted by McGann and Lerman. Um, it's published in Java. That's a really beautifully designed um, assessment. They conducted the assessment and then replicated it multiple times. It's, it's a really well designed um, error correction assessment. So that would be um, a great one to refer to. Um, uh, Jason Vladescu um, and um, his students um, have a couple of studies um, that have used assessments to guide the selection of differential reinforcement procedures. Um, and those would be great studies um, to review as well. Um, if you're looking for an assessment of prompt dependence, um, one of my students, um, Ella Gorgon, and I developed an assessment and used that um, assessment to guide um, the selection of interventions for prompt dependent behavior. Um, that, it, that study is um, Gorgon and Kodak. It's 2019, and that's published in Java. Um, so those are a couple of examples of um, some uh, exemplars of how to use assessments, how to conduct assessments um, with learners, and um, then select those uh, or identify those outcomes for use in practice. 
Thank you for sharing those. We'll be sure to link to those in the show notes. So listeners, if you're interested, check that out. Tiffany, thank you so much for your time today. I'm sorry we went a little over our scheduled time, but I just kind of got wrapped up in the topic, if I'm being honest. I just really enjoyed this. And so thanks for coming on the show and thank you for providing this resource to the field. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's been um, really enjoyable. Before you leave, remember to subscribe and like us on whatever podcast player you use. Find us and follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and to suggest recent BAT papers that we should review. Links are available in the show notes. Finally, I'd like to thank a few people for helping create this podcast. Thank you to Stephanie Peterson, the editor of the Journal Behavior Analysis and Practice. Thank you to ABAI for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my assistant producers, Elizabeth Nervaez and Jesse Perrin, and the production assistant for this episode, Beyonce Ferrucci. Finally, thank you to Jim Carr and his band, New Latitude, for letting us sample their song, Cruising Altitude, throughout this podcast. <laughs>